0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Master Investor podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis. And for this podcast, I'm very happy to be joined by Hugh Yarrow, who manages the Evan Lode Income Fund and is the founder of the Evan Lode Fund Management Business, an unusual fund management company in a way, since Hugh and his colleagues operate out of a converted barn in Oxfordshire rather than in the City of London or another big conurbation. Hugh used to manage funds for Rathbones, the wealth management business, but started his own company, Avonload, with colleagues in 2009. The Avonload Income Fund has been running since then and has delivered pretty good performance over 10 years. The annualised rate of return is just shy of 10%, which puts it on a par with the likes of Nick Train's Linsel Train UK Equity Fund and represents a significant outperformance of the FTSE All-Share Index. Reflecting its uh, strong and consistent performance, the Open Ended Fund is one of the bigger ones in its sector, with some $3.5 billion of market value spread across its 39 holdings. The historic yield at the latest reference point was 2.7%, and it has a high active share of around 76%, meaning that its uh, portfolio is significantly different to that of its benchmark, which is the FTSE All Share Index. The strategy of the fund is to look for UK-listed companies which have quality characteristics. So, in other words, some combination of growth, strong balance sheets, positive cash flow. The distinguishing feature about the Avon Load Income Fund is that it has been one of the most consistent performers in its sector over the years since it was started, perhaps the most consistent. That means it's never going to shoot the lights out in any one year, but it continues to produce compounding returns, as I say, averaging around 10% per annum over the last decade. And it sticks very closely to its mandate. There's a universe of stocks, which excludes several of the biggest sectors in the UK market, like banks and uh, energy companies, because they don't meet its criteria. Hugh himself describes the fund as being a fund of global leaders, which just happen to be listed in the UK market. So something like 75% of the underlying revenues come from overseas for the companies in the portfolio. It's a relatively concentrated portfolio with only around 30 stocks in it. And uh, unusually, last year, 2022, where the fund obviously suffered in line with the markets overall, there was an unusually high level of turnover. Some six changes to the portfolio, additions and some disposals, plus a couple of bids that took out some other constituents. So when I travelled over to see Hugh in his uh, converted barn offices, just this side of Chipping Norton, I began by asking him about the UK market and his portfolio and whether he was seeing among the companies in his portfolio the kind of valuation discount that many commentators point out is true of the UK market as a whole. Later on, we move on to discuss a number of the stocks in his portfolio, why he likes them or why he no longer owns them. And we talk about the characteristics that appeal to him and he believes are the key to long-term sustainable income generation and capital growth. We all know that the UK market, stock market, is uh, pretty unloved in general terms by global investors, certainly. And in aggregate, you know, trading at a discount on, on most valuations, even like-for-like companies are often trading at a discount to their international peers. But is that actually true of your portfolio because of that international sort of underlying component? It's, it's predominantly international business. Are you actually seeing that in the valuations of the companies that you own that are listed in the UK? Is there a, a UK discount that you're suffering from as well in terms of valuation?
1: I think there is. I think it was bigger 18 months ago. But I think it's still there. I think the UK market is unloved. It's um, a much smaller part of the global stock market than it used to be. I don't think you have to go back that long ago for it to have been sort of 10% or so of global market capitalisation. And it's, I think it's down at sort of 3% or so now. And so in a way for an asset allocator, particularly a global one, but to some extent UK asset allocators too, there's not sort of big career risk in being fairly underweight in the UK. And I think it, it suffers a bit from being a slightly strange index as well because if you, it would actually, the sectors that even low income doesn't invest in because of its process, if you add up sort of miners, oils, banks, yeah. insurers, utilities and telecoms, that's more than half of the index. And some of those businesses are quite cyclical. And so it's a slightly funny index. So I suppose we're in a slightly different position to the normal UK asset allocator in that we're selecting businesses that have these asset like quality compounding characteristics sort of amongst the gaps of those big sectors if you like. And we have noticed that in company management teams have commented on it, perhaps some of the engineering companies where they, just, they, they know that their US listed peers are perhaps on a few terms, more PE, very similar businesses operating in the same global sectors, but have a higher rating because of their, their listing. Uh, so I think there is a bit of that effect there. And um, going back to the point of the modest valuation of the portfolio in the context of the last decade, it's very much within that historical range. I think that's um, probably you know, partly explained by the, the unfashionability of the UK market. But I mean, some of the reason the UK market's on a very low PE is clearly because some of those big Stocks in those big sectors are cyclical. And in the case of, say, the oil companies, people aren't that sure about their longer term future. And so the P rate ratios are quite low. And that does drag the index multiple down. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I guess what I'm coming around to is asking you the question, whether you think there's much scope for valuation gains in your portfolio, as opposed to just going grinding out the underlying uh, and, as you would say, strong fundamentals of the business uh, in terms of uh, you know the kind of returns you might get looking ahead. Mm. Do you think there's scope to get both some valuation gains and the underlying return that you're getting from the portfolio, or is it are we in for a kind of longer haul as far well as the UK is concerned? A UK listed. Well, I, I never, I've never
1: assumed valuation gains. I think in a way they're less sustainable gains than the, the heavy lifting of the fundamental economics. But I think. The starting valuations are relatively modest, I think that's fair, fair to say. So I think there's definitely some sense of that. I mean, to give you a sort of analogy on the way I think about valuation, if you imagine a beach ball in the sea and you want the sea to be the rising tide, you want the companies you're investing in to be basically compounding over time and that's the rising tide, exactly what rate they go at will depend on each particular business, but we want to be, investing in them when that beach ball sort of pushed out of the water. So you do get the combination of both the the rising tide but also the beach ball slowly, hopefully at some point rising to the surface. That's how we invest. We're we're not looking to try and invest in seas where the tide is structurally going out, even if the beach ball's lower, because that can be very tricky. I mean, I'm not saying that people can't do that well. It's just not our approach and it's basically the old Cigar butt approach, as Buffett put it, sort of the Benjamin Graham approach, and, and equally, we're not looking for stable businesses. So, I think we would want the weight of the performance over 10 years or 20 years to be from that fundamental compounding. But I think the starting valuation, when you think about free cash value, really, more than 5%, it feels like the beach ball is underwater, and that should give you a little bit of tailwind over that period, but we're certainly not baking that into our expectations on return. So, uh, I mean, we have a long-term proprietary metric that we call the forward cash return, which is effectively our estimate of the fundamental total return over the long term. We think that these companies should be able to produce, but that's assuming no change in valuation, and that's currently sitting sort of high single digit, which is Again, similar to the spot free cash flow very much in line with the last decade, it was a bit higher, sort of low double digit in that sort of 2009 to 2011-12 period coming out of the great financial crisis. And very briefly, in Q2, 2020, it kind of went back to those sorts of levels and obviously it was a very traumatic time for global society, but from a valuation perspective, for a brief sort of few weeks, Suddenly, we were seeing former returns that we hadn't seen since 2009, 10, really. Um, but now, obviously, with the the, the recovery in, in in the markets since that bottom, the COVID bottom, if you like, we are back into that sort of historic range, which for the, the sort of portfolio currently looks like high single digit sort of total returns. So, no, that's not going to come in a straight line. You know, that, that's a sort of long-term sure. finger in the air back of the envelope sort of. Rough estimate of where the valuation environment is. Yeah.
0: That's a nominal return, right? So you, I mean, you're just assuming inflation stays at.
1: In that's two that, so percent. Inflation goes up, you would expect. That's that to assuming be a, a very low level of inflation, as yeah. much with the tune of the sort of last decade or so. I suppose the point I would make on that is that if we did get a bit more inflation in the system, it probably actually would mean that that return should be slightly higher. Yeah. I'm not saying dramatically over probably, time, it should a push bit, a bit higher yeah. over time.
0: So final point of valuation before we talk about what's in the portfolio and that is obviously you, you run some global funds as well principally the largest one is a global equity income fund which is one on the same principles as, as your UK fund mm. what does the valuation on that look like compared to the valuation on your UK equity income fund in other words in terms of yeah. free cash flow yield how does that compare?
1: So it looks very similar in terms of the free cash flow yield and the, the forward cash return but if you spoke to the global income team I think the fund is a Bit over five years old now, they have had to work harder on managing valuation. So I think there has been more things in their universe that have re rated and they've sort of moved on from over the last five years. Whereas I think within the UK market, there's been less of that. So I think we've made less changes for valuation reasons than they probably have to retain that sort of starting free cash flow level where it's been. Um, but I think it, it is worth noting that there's been a, a reasonably big move in US markets in the last 18 months to two years. So I think that's helpful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Certainly is. Well, let's I don't, obviously not go to talk about the whole part, but let's just quickly uh, look at it. Some of your um, bigger holdings and so on. I think you've got about 40 holdings normally in your UK yeah. equity account fund. And your largest holding is typically is what about eight percent, something like that. Would that be right? So yeah. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the full breakdown a year ago, but you uh, can bring us more up to date figures. What's on the top of the table at the moment? I'm thinking probably Unilever. Well, I am looking at this <laughs> Unilever, L'X, Diageo. Have they have they changed positions? Well, have be much movement in the ranking of your portfolio over the last year or so?
1: I think the movements over the last year have probably been a bit more at the bottom end of the portfolio. So for context, we have a maximum position size framework where we have 10 risk factors that we score A to E, uh, which are all things that we think are particularly important for the long-term investor. So that's anything from the strength of competitive position to pricing power to the long-term industry outlook to the balance sheet strength to the strength of cash generation, the quality of the management, ESG risk, liquidity of shares as a incrementary fund is sort of one technical risk. And from the fund team set a maximum position for each company, which is we won't go higher than, but where there's a lot of so diversifications and other risk factors so have a very diverse business, sort of globally diversified, you know, perhaps if you take something like Relics or Unilever, the actual Divisions or the brands under the bonnet of the company uh, are quite, are quite diverse as well. Um, you know, we always want the bedrock of the portfolio to be in repeat purchase cash flows. So, um, though so we'll give bigger maximum position sizes for those more stable companies as well. So you'll typically see those sort of larger, more repeat purchase businesses that have more liquid shares as a higher max and therefore higher weightings. Whereas for, for sort of the mid the cap positions they tend to be smaller so I mentioned how joinery was earlier so that's a very very good quality business but it is quite focused on the UK it's operating in an economically sensitive market predominantly selling obviously kitchens to UK consumers um, it does have a very strong balance sheet that we weigh up all those factors and the max position is, is currently three so I think in terms of the main changes I mentioned the sort of new additions to the fund, which were sort of, some of them were large companies like Experian and actually we added LBMH last summer. Um, there's a you know, French listed global luxury leader. And then some of those mid cap names that I mentioned like Diploma or Integrafin and Games Workshop. And we, we added some Palmer towards the end of the year as well. Um, and then on the sell side, the main changes were actually the takeovers that you mentioned. So those were all those three takeovers that sort of exited the, the funders as well. So there's been a bit of, sort of change to existing holdings in terms of positions, but I think those are the main main things that are
0: hard. Well, let's take out just a few names, not, not all of them, obviously. Um, Unilever has obviously been much in the news for a couple of years, a lot of issues with the management, and uh, now you've got new, significant shareholders. What's been your stance on Unilever through this particular, I mean, obviously you're a relatively small shareholders, so they're probably not asking your opinion as much as they're asking some other investors. But uh, what's been your thinking about Unilever? Do you think they're now going in the right direction?
1: It's, it's basically a good global business in some very attractive geographic regions in terms of its exposure to emerging markets. And it has this huge sort of history going back for a very long time in places like Brazil, and India, etc. Uh, so real sort of market-leading brands, very broadly geographically diversified. It should grow revenue at, I mean, if you look back from 2000, I think the average organic revenue growth has been 4% per annum. So it's one of these businesses. It's not, going back to the rising tide, it's not the most rapid rising tide, but it's a nice steady rising tide. And probably if it's executing not so well, it might be growing at 3%, which is what it's grown at since the craft approach a few years ago in 2017. And obviously, there's been COVID as well, which hasn't helped. And if it's executing well, it's probably growing at 5% sort of organic growth. And I think with all consumer staples businesses, they are attractive, cash-generative, high gross margin businesses. And if you invest consistently behind the brands in terms of AP spending as a percentage of sales, R&D spending as a percentage of sales, capex as a percentage of sales, and you, you manage the portfolio sensibly in terms of sort of disposing tail brands that aren't working or categories that are coming commoditized and make sensible bolt-ons, then that's the model that works because if you're pushing decent organic revenue growth through a high gross margin, high cash conversion business, that adds up to a nice amount of sort of shareholder value creation, cash flow compounding over time. And I think you have sort of admitted over the last year that the craft bid, they did set this sort of operating margin target. And I think COVID didn't help either because it was quite disruptive to making investments and they had a big organisational change that they were planning but didn't go ahead. I think that a combination of the COVID disruption and sort of being a bit too cart before the horse about margin targets because you can reach a higher operating margin one of two ways. You can either cut costs. That's the bad way to reach it. Or you can invest in the business to drive organic revenue growth that produces operating leverage for you. And that's the good way to do it, particularly if you're a consumer staple. So I think that both of those things have been at play, but, but there was a bit too much of the sort of trying to meet the quarterly target on the operating margins. And, and they've sort of been through a slight sort of reset this year, which is partly because of input cost inflation. And You know, they've taken price and that's working its way through the system, but there's a bit of a lag. But also, they did have quite a lot of shareholder engagement. You know, we were involved post the sort of leaking of the story that they were sniffing around at the, what's now called Halion, which is the GSK, consumer healthcare business. And I think that actually was quite healthy because it, it was a very sort of comprehensive shareholder engagement exercise with with shareholders. And while different shareholders have different opinions about various factors, I think there was a a broad consensus that making sure that investment levels in the business were consistent and prioritised was a particularly important one. So you know it's still something we're we're monitoring, but I think the tone has definitely improved on on that front. But it's you know still basically quite the same business really that it was three or four years ago with the same Category of brand exposures broadly, and, and, and we think they are attractive over the medium to long term.
0: So, what what happened? What was going on to sort of criticism of the management? And so, on, that didn't prompt you to sell any shares. You were happy to see it through.
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks pretty attractive to us over the last three or four years from the valuation perspective. I and mean, currently, it's on a yield of 3.6% or so, 3.67%, and a free cash flow yield of sort of 5% plus. Which we think is quite a modest valuation for a company of Unilever's strengths. And obviously it's also a very repeat purchase business. I mean, interestingly, if you go back 50 years ago, it was yielding about the same 3.67%, <laughs> very different business. And it's grown its dividend at sort of 10% per annum since then. I'm not necessarily saying that that's a prediction for the future, but that's added up to a sort of 14% return over the long term because you have the 4% starting year, the dividend year, plus the 10% growth in the dividend, which is going back to the old fashioned income and growth approach. Doesn't involve a fair amount of patience, but if these businesses can ride that out over time, then it's quite attractive. So. The Unilever, as I was saying, is at the lower end of the sort of category growth rates relative to some of the other consumer staples we look at. So Diageo obviously is another relatively large position in the fund. So their category growth rate is definitely higher than Unilever's yeah. over the medium to long term. But the compensatory factor for Unilever at the moment is that uh, attractive free cash flow yield and dividend yield that forms part of your return.
0: So you mentioned GSK and, and Hallium. What was your view about that? You're still in So obviously, but you, you sold your shares in Halyon. So what was your, was your thinking about that? H- so H- Halyon is, is
1: a great business. Mm-hmm. We have of it. We, we also inherited the sort of a small position. It was literally 0. 06 0.7% of the, the fund from the GSK position. And we have seen the broadening out of the opportunity set that I, that I mentioned. And the, the issue with Hallium at the moment is that they're carrying a lot of debt because GSK sort of reset their balance sheet as part of the spin off. Okay. So actually, GSK have got the strongest balance sheet they've had this century, I think, pretty much now, which is helpful for them in terms of sort of bolt ons, re licensing, et cetera. But, but Hallion has, it's a cash generative company, but it's come to, to market at sort of four times net debt to a dollar or so. So that we were seeing other opportunities where the dividend yield was, has good or better valuation looked as good or better and the balance sheet risk was lower. But it, it's the global market leader in consumer healthcare. The category growth rates are reasonably attractive. And uh there's no reason it shouldn't be able to compound at a good rate over time. But the risk profile is relatively high at the moment with that level of debt. So, you know, if interest rates went up a lot from where they are or if something happened that impaired the free cash flow of over the short term, then, but, you know, those would be clear risk factors. So, we've kept it in the universe and we'll continue to monitor it. But I think we'd be more interested in it if it manages to get that debt level down in the next couple of years from its cash generation, which you know,
0: should deleverage it sort of half after a year or so. Do you think it could not survive as an independent company?
1: It could. I mean, it's a global sector that's clearly got sort of consolidation runway, which is both an opportunity and a risk for and So they could be involved in some kind of merger with another company or another company could buy them more equally. They could try and make bigger acquisitions themselves. But there is that sense that some of these businesses have been a bit orphaned, whether they've come from, you know, pharmaceutical owners or whether they're sort of within bigger sort of global consumer goods companies. And, but but it's, there's definitely a sense that there may be some corporate activity in that space over the next five to 10 years.
0: And just picking out some other names, I mean, I think you're a shareholder in Ogreage uh, Lansdowne where you had the spectacle of the founder criticizing the board effectively. They've obviously been a disappointment recently in terms of performance. What are your thoughts about that one?
1: Yeah, that's been the sort of problem child over 2022. So it was the, the most negative contributor to the fund's return. So that was a new position actually in sort of late 2020. Uh, having been a highly rated quality business, it was a sort of bit of a market darling really. Went through a derating and as we sometimes find with these sort of deratings, we were a little bit early in, in retrospect and it suffered from I mean, it's actually in some ways had quite a good pandemic. It's got 50% more clients than it had before. And the market share in the direct to consumer space it has been in the low 40s for quite a long time and that hasn't really changed. And retention rates on clients are sort of low Low nineties or so. So good sort of recurring cash flow is basically a good platform that people like. And actually the average client age as well has declined over that period. And you know, clients, when they come in, they tend to stay with given those retention rates and and then their portfolios build over time. So there's a sort of latency to come through from that younger, larger client base. Now, clearly the business has suffered from. Well, there was the, the sort of the episode of the Woodford roof, episode, et cetera, which yeah. was actually reinvested after that. And I think actually having a light shone on that and sort of making some changes from the conflict sort of interest was was helpful from our perspective in terms of that risk. And then there's been the, the falling markets, global markets last year, which obviously there's an ad valorem nature to yeah. the HR business model. And then there's that their pricing is a bit higher than competitors. And, you know, given the retention rates, people are obviously are, are happy to. Pay a bit more, but they are looking to invest, you know, particularly at say bigger portfolio sizes, they are likely to bring the revenue sort of, of ad valorem revenue charge down a bit for those portfolios over time. And so, although the overall market is set to grow and they are expecting to generate operating leverages once they come through this current investment phase, the operating leverage won't, some of that will probably be reinvested in. Price over the medium term, so there are some challenges. And obviously, at the moment, they you know back in February last year they made this announcement. They're investing more in their tech platform and also in their advice offering. And I think both of those investments come with execution risk, which we acknowledge. And so our maximum position size isn't huge, but actually, you know, for the company of you know, the qualities of HL, very strong balance sheet, very strong cash conversion, good re- recurring revenue, and in, in a market which actually is set so, you know UK wealth has got some quite interesting structural tailwinds, particularly the D 2 C part of it, which is gradually taking share from the overall uh the penetration's increasing relative to the overall UK wealth market. I think there are some quite interesting dynamics there. And the stock is definitely got a market darling.
0: <laughs> in the short term, they're going to make a lot of money out of cash as well. Of course, that's always one of the ways. Yeah, I mean, that's true. With that's interest rates going up, and
1: um, the quiet part of the business model that hasn't really reared its yeah. head in the last few years, but that's slightly changing
0: with the way rates
1: have moved recently. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but so the fact that Peter Hargreaves is starting off a little bit, is he against a bit of easy jet syndrome Or has he got a point?
1: Well, I think he has a point in terms of the execution risk on the investments that they're making. And we we acknowledge that risk. But there, I think there's some other qualities and valuation appeals to the business that we think are, are very interesting at the moment. So. So you haven't been reducing that anyway? or No, we've, we've topped it up. But as I say, our max position size is pretty small. It's relatively small, so it's not a huge holding. No.
0: Well, that's the new names you mentioned. I mean, one that I think a lot of people won't know much about is IntegraFin, because you don't own a lot of very small companies. But what, what's the story there? What particularly appealed to you about that? Tell us what they do and why that's appealing to yeah, you. Well, we're on the
1: same topic as HL here. So IntegraFin, are a, they provide the transact platform, which yes. is a leading platform, technology platform that, UK uh, financial advisors use. So they've got a very good reputation with advisors and have sort of built that loyalty up over time. So not similar, rather than the direct to consumer market, this is in the advisor market, um, but very high recurrence of cash flow within that model. And they've gradually taken share within their sort of market niche over time. And they IPO'd I think it was in 2019. And again, like with HL, it was a very highly rated company. And when IPO, and I think even going to the back end of 2021, if you looked at it from a PE basis, it was probably trading on sort of 40 times PE or possibly even a bit more than that. But there was a sort of drawdown, which sort of troughed at about 65% peak to trough during 2022, which was largely a, a D rating. So they did step up their investment a bit in tech, mm-hmm. and obviously there was a, a little bit of the market effect with the Apple or fee model. So there was some sort of modest downgrades to earnings, but that 65% share price move was almost all derating. So I think the stock got down to sort of mid to high teens PE back in back last summer, which is around that, when we added the position, I think it was July, we added the position. So that was at that point back on a sort of 4.5% yield covered by a very attractive free cash flow yield. So there were some big moves that last year, and I I suppose that's a a good example of of a share price that went very quickly from one place to another, whereas our views on the fundamentals of business didn't change very much.
0: And that same would go for um, games workshop and that's another one we've been popular with a lot of a lot of investors have sort of growthy tech stock for a while and then sold off very sharply what sort of price did you get back into that one at
1: so that was last july time as well so again i think some of these real high quality compounding businesses you just you had more sellers than buyers in the market over the the summer last year and they are good businesses but they probably had benefits a bit from you know, re-rating over the last few years, so they've been in our universe. I mean, Gabe's workshop. I think we added it to our universe, perhaps in 2018 or so. So it had, been, it had been in our universe for four years or so, and then it just sort of started looking more attractive. And you know, th- that's been a general theme last year is that the opportunity set's broadened down. So although, as I was saying earlier, the absolute valuation appeal was probably a bit better in the. 2020 COVID sell off and the sort of 2009 to 12 period. The broadness of the opportunity sets as good now, I would say, as it was back in 2009 to 2012. So some of the conversations we're having are around sort of, there are various names that are asking the question of, Should they be in the portfolio? But then if we add them, you need to reduce other things or take other things out. So how much do you broaden out the portfolio versus keeping it as it is or swapping names in and out? But those are quite interesting conversations at the moment because a lot of those names are these asset-like, very high-quality compounding businesses for the long term.
0: And uh, in terms of the other things you added, just a quick word on those. So you mentioned Diploma, for example, is one you, you've gone back into.
1: Yeah, so it's. Uh, I think Peter Lynch used to say, try and invest in companies that do boring things and have boring names. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Diploma fits that bill. So it's a sort of speciality, value-added distribution business. So it has end market exposure to sort of electrical connectors and uh, healthcare and industrial seals, but it's a real sort of god of small things. So it, it dominates the niches that it's in and it's taking the hassle factor away from its business customers. So, you know, if you need your electrical connectors on site tomorrow morning and they need to be on a particular quality and they all need to be there with sort of 99% plus fulfillment, then you would use diploma because they have that reputation for quality and reliability. Mm-hmm. And that leads to those sort of niche market leadership positions leads and the switching costs for customers lead to those very nice kind of uh, asset-like high return economics that we look for.
0: And what sort of rating was that on when you picked those shares up?
1: Well, I think the free cash flow yield would have been back up at sort of getting on 5%, sort of 4% to 5%, having come back quite a long way. And the dividend yield was probably back up to 2% or a bit over 2%, that, that sort of level. So, quite a big move back up from where it'd
0: been a year a year before. So that I think is around a kind of three billion market cap something there? Yeah. Yeah. So that's towards the smaller range. I mean you've got a couple of smaller Page Group you mentioned, that's a recruitment agency, right?
1: Yeah. So Page Group and Hayes are both in the portfolio. And mm-hmm. the bedrock of the even load income portfolio is very much invested in repeat purchase businesses. So I, I talked about our A to E scoring with A's and B's are quite low. Economic sensitivity that more than three quarters of the portfolios have been those two categories. But then we do. I mean, the recruitment companies are probably the most economically sensitive businesses within the, the portfolio. Actually, and, you know, they're both relatively small holdings to reflect that and the fact that they're mid caps, but they're very good businesses. There's some very interesting. They're global businesses, so they both started out in the UK, um, but the UK is now a relatively low percentage of sales, so they've they become market leaders globally in white-collar recruitment, and if you look globally in places like Asia and Latin America, but to be honest, in Europe, and, you know Germany is a very attractive market for the recruits at the moment. There's both a move towards more contractors and more temporary staff as the culture changes, so the sort of job for life idea erodes over time, both from an employer preference perspective and an employee preference perspective and also that the specialist recruiters are used much more. So if you look in the UK, 80% of all job roles would be placed through the sort of specialist recruiters, whereas in Germany, it would be a lot less than 50%, um, probably less than 30%. But if you go to sort of Asia or Latin America, it would be certainly less than 10%. So there's some quite interesting structural tailwinds for those businesses. The issue with them is that they have the economic sensitivity, but the management teams know that that's the case. So they run with strong balance sheets and they do have counter-cyclical free cash flow as well, which is helpful. And actually you often find with these more cyclical businesses, if they're well run and they've got good market leadership, there's that sort of strong growth, stronger trend when they go through the downturn. So actually the, the business's position can strengthen, even though you don't see the it in strength. the financial results at the time, but when ultimately the sector emerges from its downturn, and um, they've often picked up a bit of share. Yeah.
0: And then in terms of what you got rid of, you mentioned you obviously had those takeovers, the three M&A activities, but you also got out of WPP and uh, AB Inbev. Is that just a question of you'll find something better than them or was there specific issues there?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were both a bit like Alien. They were making room for other things. Uh, AB inbev has been... Problematic. We used to have SAB Miller in the portfolio, which was taken over by ABM and they took on a lot of debt to do it. And um, they've had issues with emerging market currency devaluation and then obviously COVID and the debt just hasn't come down at the rate that we would have hoped for. So they're still running a bit like Haley and that's sort of four times net debt to EBITDA. So although it's a very good business, global market leadership in beer, that balance sheet risk was, was, was relatively high and we, we were seeing other things where Again, the dividend and the valuation look just as good, but you know, our overall conviction in the long-term compounding and, the, and also the balance sheet strength was higher. And I mean, similarly with WPP, we were seeing other things where we felt that combination of quality and valuation appeal was was better. So we started exiting WPP in the back end of 2021, had a very good year performance-wise in 2021, and we finished exiting in 2022. But it was more making room for other things. I mean, WPP still in the universe.
0: So, just in overall, I mean, what are you thinking about at the moment? Without mentioning specific names, are there particular areas of the market that you're looking at? Do you think there'll be more turnover of the kind you've you've been describing, you know, kind of displacing one thing for something that looks better?
1: A bit more nuanced when I look at it, stock by stock. Now, so there was a point in late summer, early autumn where it was very clear, there was very clear performance trends where those high quality, sort of highly rated businesses like the experience were coming back very sharply, or uh, with Tegrafin cetera, and, and then more generally in the mid-cap sector, there was a very clear trend as well. And I think that's changed a bit in, in certainly since mid-October. There's been quite a strong rally in global markets and quite a strong recovery in the UK markets and if i look at what's led back within our universe it's definitely been it's a combination of mid caps that perhaps got a bit oversold businesses with that more economic sensitivity and perhaps some of those highly rated names that also got quite oversold back in late summer whereas the more boring sort of steady defensive repeat purchase models so the staples you know universe, etc have lagged that rally you know and the healthcare companies have definitely been laggards in that in that rally. So that's meant that we're actually at the moment seeing it's hard to sort of generalize, but there's more repeat purchase businesses where we think the valuation bill looks good. There's others that are a bit less attractive at the moment in terms of fresh capital and it, equally the same I'd say for, for mid-cap. So there's a very interesting list of names, but it's a fairly eclectic one. I mean which we quite like if you think about the sort of anything from Experian in kind of credit checking and Data analytics to LVMH luxury handbags to Games workshops, to Citadel miniatures to Diploma a specialist industrial dis- distributor to Helmer a specialist industrial health and safety sort of engineering business uh, to Integrafin in UK financial services pla- technology platform provision. It's nice if you can find businesses that all share these sort of quality characteristics and have good potential for compounding growth, but where you're blending the free cash flows and they're coming from a wide variety of sectors and business models, which of like it, if we can do that. So that's been quite a nice development. I mean, we're always managing diversification carefully, but sort of at the margins, have you seen know, a few more interesting business models come into range and we've still got a watch list. But as I said to you, it's sort of, if something comes in, something else will often need to come out. I guess... It's positive that at the moment we want to add, add to more things or add more things to the portfolio and vice versa. And
0: just to ask this question last time we spoke, but looking back, uh, what are the things that you regret? Are there some regrets you regret most? I mean, things that others who do the same kind of style to you have owned a few companies that obviously had mixed fortunes recently. So, you know, Fever Tree or Man United or things like that. Um, what's on your regret list, if anything?
1: <laughs> well, there's the regrets by commission.
0: <laughs>
1: <It's>, um, <laughs> You know, there's been a few over the years, and then there's the regrets by omission. I think looking back historically, there's been a few companies where we probably were a bit quick to exit for valuation reasons and hadn't quite factored in the strength of the compounding ability. And actually, I would say that Diploma and Helma are good examples of that, where we yeah, the businesses did very well when they were in the portfolio, but we probably exited them earlier than we needed to. And yeah, you know, we have now returned to them. So I think there's a there's a few names there where we've probably failed to factor in the ability for them really ratcheting out that sort of quality compounding growth over time. And then at the other end, the complete other end of the spectrum is it, it tends to be where you've got sort of you know, I mean, balance sheet risk, I, I talked about an example, which hasn't been a terrible investment, but it's definitely been one where we would have been better off in other names where that's really sort of acted as a bit of a sort of weight around the company's neck. And I think that management of fundamental risk, particularly when you've got, say, a combination of balance sheet risk and free cash flow under pressure is something you've always got to be careful of. <laughs> yeah.
0: But nothing you lie awake at night saying if only I had more of that particular name, one you haven't mentioned so far.
1: No, no. I mean, other than that general comment that I think there's sometimes been names that we perhaps could have held on to for a bit longer. So final
0: question Um, then, looking ahead, very uncertain times still, we don't know what's happening to inflation, recession, whatever, Ukraine war, we don't know. As usual, there's an awful lot of things going on. But given where you're starting from, how would you uh, rate your degree of optimism? I mean, you'll, you'll expect the portfolio to go on grinding out what it does, because that's what you do long term. Mm-hmm. But you have some sort of general comment about where we are in the cycle and what might happen over the next eighteen months or so. We've got an election coming up in the UK, for example. Uh, we haven't talked about politics and the trust government and what that did. <laughs> I guess we won't. You don't talk about politics, but um, do you see some political risk in the UK? Well, I think,
1: I mean, I slightly sidestep this question in that there's always uncertainty and assembling a portfolio that's relatively insulated for a wide range of outcomes is quite important. But I think when I think about the key sort of known unknowns at the moment, there's the depth of the economic slowdown. And obviously, that's complicated in investment markets because it's both What's actually going to happen with the global economic slowdown, but also how much is priced in? And going back to earlier comments on market trend, it felt like quite a deep slowdown priced in sort of late summer, early autumn. And I think there's clearly been a lot more optimism, which in terms of the start to the year, but that has meant that valuations have gone back up again for some of these more economically cyclical names. So it's always this sort of process. And then there's inflation. We've we've talked about that. So how deep is the economic slowdown going to be globally and how rapidly will inflation drop and how significantly will inflation drop are obviously key questions for this year. And then I think the cost of capital having risen is another very significant point to make. And going back to our sort of stock-specific conversation just now on balance sheet risk, I think that's something that hasn't been a particular focus of late, but it's something to remind ourselves of because businesses do tend to have quite a lot of fixed debt. But if they're carrying a lot of debt, those interest costs will creep up over time. It probably does have implications for M&A as well within markets. And it's more of an anchor for, for valuation as well. So, I mean, this, this is a very boring answer. But you know, if I take the economic uncertainty, it's good to have sort of quite a lot of businesses that have a lot of repeat purchase cash flow to fend against that. From an inflationary perspective, clearly you want businesses with pricing power that you know are able to be pretty good at defending investors against inflation over time. And you know we we discussed about high gross margins, and then um, balance sheet strength is important. And actually, I mentioned our A to E risk score for economic sensitivity and the aggregate balance sheet position for the C, D, and E's, which are the more economically cyclical businesses, is, is net cash and 15 of our 39 holdings have net cash. So where there is some debt in the portfolio, it's currently 0.8 times net debt to the data, that's very much skewed towards the more stable repeat purchase businesses. So those factors combined with a modest valuation we do find of comfort, but we definitely don't make predictions about the sort of short-term vicissitudes of either the political sphere or the economic sphere, which I think, as always, incredibly hard to predict. And even in years where, because there's a sort of stock phrase, isn't there, that we use in investment, which is, the uncertainties look particularly high. But I think the uncertainties are always high. It's just sometimes you're more aware of some clear known unknowns and other times you're not quite sure what might be about to jump out, which I think mean, the pandemic was a great example of that for us many other examples over the years. And that's why we are genuinely long term investors. We're taking a minimum of a five year time horizon when we make investment decisions. And I, I think, you know, the through cycle risk management, it sounds very boring risk management, but I think it's the primary job that we need to do for investors over the, the very long term. And sometimes that means that you're sort of, you know, a bit of a laggard in some, some very optimistic markets. But it sort of helps you stay the course, I suppose.
0: Yeah, well, I was thinking more in terms of things like corporation tax going up and the government being indebted and windfall taxes and all that, but they don't apply to the sectors you're really, in, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think clearly corporation tax is going up, up a bit like with interest costs. And that's not just a UK phenomenon, but there's sort of talk around global minimums. And so that, yeah. that's another sort of potential pressure on free cash flows over the next few years. And I, I don't think it's going to be dramatic, but their you know, interest costs are a bit higher. Tax rates are a bit higher going up. I think the other thing we haven't really talked about is supply chains. And companies don't rip up supply chains overnight. And a lot of these global multinationals have worked incredibly hard to sort of make sure they have got local-to-local um, production where possible and don't have a lot of sole source suppliers, but will normally have at least two suppliers for key components. But at the margin, there's definitely a sort of near-shoring and friend trend. Where companies are just thinking about the incremental bit of capital that's being invested and where that's going, probably not going to China. They might be reinvesting profits from their Chinese subsidiary and in Chinese investments, but you know, you're talking more about Mexico or Portugal or Turkey, for instance, in terms of the incremental uh, supply chain investment now, I, I, I would say. So there's some, there are some quite interesting trends going on for corporates, which need managing. But uh, yeah, thinking about those sort of qualities that I mentioned, I think you know the best businesses are adaptable to quite a wide range of scenarios and can sort of cope and change. And they've had to deal with a lot over the last few years, and I think they've dealt with things pretty well in balance. Actually, uh, one of the great things about equities versus bonds is you actually have thousands of people working for you and getting up every morning and trying to figure out how to cope with a changing environment. But then I'm, I'm an equity guy, as I said earlier, so I'm biased. <laughs>
0: So that brings us to the end of our podcast with Hugh Yarrow, manager of the Evan Lode Income Fund. Thank you for listening and look out for more in this series of podcasts with the very best professional investors around the UK.
1: This has been a Master Investor Podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk.